Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we talk about moving away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems. My name is Rob, and I'm the Learning Engagement Coordinator at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. In this episode, the hosts Lara and Mike are joined by Tahis Vojvodic, the Foundation's Plastic Packed Network Manager. In this episode, we discuss some of the ways in which Latin America has benefited from the circular economy and how Latin America can utilise their abundant natural resources to promote inclusive and distributed growth. Lara kicked off the conversation by asking Mike about the current uptake of the circular economy by the different players in the Latin American economy. That's a good question, actually, because the circular economy went from zero at the last five years, past five years, went from zero, from nothing, from really incipient to be featuring the agendas of governments, institutions, universities, and businesses. So leading business, nations, cities are taking action right now towards a more circular economy or a circular economy approach to integrate like social, economic, and environmental aspects. Uh, but there's a long way to go, you know, so it's not a priority yet for the region and it's not, uh, we should embrace more the circular economy, but there's a big, huge opportunity and huge challenges that we can face that. Uh, in practice, Latin America, if I can tell you an overview, it's, it's a linear, extractive, uh, uh, you know, economy based more on commodities and that commodities prices and commodities way to extract it um, main, mainly of the resource that we have. So it's driven by GDP, and that GDP is more to, explo- to export products. And, and sometimes it's like harmful, you know, like when you do a lot of agriculture, but it's harmful to ecosystems and to environmental. So we have low levels of innovation and enable commodity prices, especially right now during the crisis. So it's really uh, fluctuations like, you know, during the situation from commodities and social challenges that we increase, we increase, we increase a lot uh, of the social challenges, social gaps. And that makes Latin America one of the most inequalities regions in the globe. So, I mean, you've mentioned many different things here. I think two of the things that actually uh, we need to break down in this episode is, uh, well, or that we need to talk a bit more about is like the type of economy that exists in Latin America, as you said, is largely largely extractive. And also you just mentioned that uh, it's one of the most unequal um, regions in the whole world. But you started by saying that this is something that has changed a lot over the last uh, five years. Um, so, so what happened? What happened that pushed, you know, uh, this change to happen or that, you know, in- encouraged the circular economy transition more in the last five years? Um, I think uh, we have we have integrating like the agenda of circular economy in some governments, in some businesses. And also there, there are a lot of politicians and a lot of, you know, strategies. They're trying to include the circular economy and inclusive approach to take, uh, you know, and to to preserve like natural resource and be more efficient. But the virus also 
made an outbreak, like, you know, helps a lot to expose or like the fragilities for the system. Mm -hmm. And that become more, more evident that we need a urgent transition for a circular economy model right now. So, well, you just mentioned that the pandemic and, the, and this crisis, and in, in, many, in many ways it has made all of us kind of react and at an unprecedented or almost unprecedented speed. Um, so what do you think, has this, this did the COVID-19 pandemic or is it, uh, is it having, a, is it changing the circular economy agenda in Latin America? Um, actually, the pandemic just just make more evident, just put a, you know, a, a light into those problems that we already have, already had, has like all life in Latin America, you know. Those problems we had like for years, decades, but right now they are more evident than ever before. So the circular economy could be really a solution to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. And because the, the pandemic brought a lot of inequalities, you know, they just make the inequalities more evident right now. Uh, can you imagine like a low paying jobs uh, for people that they're not able to work from home? And there's a lot of these cases in Latin America. There's a lot of that happening right now. And the idea of a circular economy could be really helpful to be a, to building a more regenerative and inclusive and distributed, you know, long-term prosperity. So the time is now. So the COVID-19 has basically, basically made all the existing or the, the problems that were already there in our economy just more visible. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about inequalities, or do you mean basically economic inequalities, economic inequality of access to goods and services? What, what Can you break this down a little bit more? I bring more social inequalities for sure, but I mean inequalities social due to the economic distribution and how they re you know, moving the, the low payments jobs and qualification, but also related to access to education. Yeah. And so it seems crucial to me that if the circular economy is going to be the one of the solutions for many of these challenges, it needs to be able to address this huge problem of social inequalities at the same time that it addresses like environmental and economic challenges that Latin America Latin American countries are facing. And as part of this show today, we want to explore examples of how the circular economy can do this in practice. Now, Mike and I are not alone in the studio because we've been joined by one of our colleagues, Thais Vojvodik. Welcome to this show. And you are the Plastics Pact Network Manager here at the Foundation. And you are going to help Mike and I show some examples of how this is done in practice, right? Yeah. Welcome, Thais. I know you have a wide experience in circular economy in Latin America. Could you please share a little bit of your background with us? Yeah, sure. Hi, Lara. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me today. It's really good to be here. Uh, well, I've been working with circular economy with, uh, for plastics for over the past seven years in different countries uh, of Latin America, but especially Brazil. And during these years, I was mostly focused on how circular economy principles can be incorporated to large, large corporations and also developing projects to support the recycling informal sector. And as you said, today I work with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation as a plastic spec manager. Uh, we have mentioned climate change, inequalities, and economic resilience as issues that we need to address as soon as possible while building back better from the pandemic. Could you give us some examples of how the circular economy can do this? 
Yeah, I can share two strong examples here from Latin America that, that were shaped under circular economy principles and are now showing how upstream innovation can be translated into more resilient business model in practice. And for better context, as Mike was saying before, Latin America is a continent of inequalities. So when purchasing products, price affordability can be a very relevant attribute uh, comparing to other regions, and especially in a crisis moment like the one we are going through. Uh, so my first example will be from Coca-Cola. It's a large example. Uh, Coca-Cola Latin America in 2018, they launched uh, what they call the universal bottle. The universal bottle is like a reinvention of that old glass refillable bottle that we, some of us <laughs> can remember from when we were younger. Uh, but this one, this new one, it's made of a, kind of a rigid plastic and it can be reused up to 25 times. And um, it's called universal because they, sh they, they designed one single shape that can be refilled with any soda flavor, any brand, any beverage from the company, which is completely different from the model that they had before. So uh, this, this universal bottle has a high value propos proposition for the consumers as they can get a 30% discount when buying a new bottle, bringing their empty bottle back, but also to the company because uh, with this uh, uh, universal shape, Uh, they have increased significantly the operational efficiency, not only inside the plants, but also in the retails. So it's helping them to increase their distribution. So with all these different benefits, what happened is that in 2019, the refillable bottles, to give you an example, only in Brazil, it was representing 22% of everything that the company was selling already. And... Uh, 22% in a country like Brazil for a company like Coca-Cola uh, means 1.8 billion one-way bottles that were not produced because of the scale of this reuse. And this was before the crisis. And well, it's very important, Thais, that we, we consider that as well. You, you just mentioned it, the scale of, of, of the things and initiatives that these, that they can have in, in countries like Brazil, which have a huge population and we, and, you know, that are super big countries. Um, you just mentioned that this was before the crisis. So does this mm -hmm. mean that COVID-19 affected in some way, uh, the sales of this? And, and if it did, why did it, why do you think that happened? Yeah, it was actually really interesting to observe that although the whole market shrank, the reusable bottles actually have been the, the among the company's least affected products uh, during the first uh, during the first months of the pandemic. And actually, because because of this market shrinking of the market shrinking, uh, the the share of the refillables they actually increased from 22 to 28 percent. So this, uh, of, of course, this is still happening, but this is a strong, there is a, st a strong hypothesis there that the reuse system actually br uh, they br could bring more resilience to, to, to a business in, in this time, in a crisis moment like the one that we're going through. And actually, this reminds me of the second example that I wanted to bring, which is Algramo. Algramo is from Chile. It's a Chilean uh, social enterprise. They sell uh, household essentials in bulk. 
so they have two models. People can go to their vending machines, carrying their own uh, con reusable containers and refill their products there. Or they can place an order in a mobile app and Algramo has like an adapted vehicle that will go to their houses and they can refill their products at their own doors. And um, with Algramo, people can get up to 40% discount. And with this, they are saving, they are not producing up to two kilograms of plastic waste per family per month, which is a lot. So these two examples that I gave from Coca-Cola and Algramo, they, they, they are not the same. They're different. They, they, they have different uh, distribution models, different business cases, but they are under the same logic. Uh, people paying only for the product and, and not for the packaging. So uh, the, they are not, the two business models, they are not generating waste by design. And that's why I believe that they have potential to gain even more scale here now. Yeah, Thais, you have mentioned those examples that could boost resilience through upstream solutions are critical for a circular economy for plastics. Um, now, if you think about recycling chains, there is still an important part of the equation for taking plastics for in the region. And we know that we are heavily dependent on informal jobs, especially waste pickers. So could you please uh, share with us a view, how can we ensure those actors in, could be included in the supply chain in the earlier stages, stages of, the, of, uh, of the working conditions and formal, formalization of this working force? Yeah, Mike, you're totally right. Actually, almost 90% of everything that is recycled in Latin America was collected by the informal sector, by a waste picker, which is massive. And being responsible for this, such an impressive number, Waste pickers, actually, they're the ones who better know what are the materials that will be recycled and will not be recycled in different parts of the continent, uh, as they are the ones who collect it and they are the ones who know where the market demand is. Uh, so and this can be high-value information for people who are designing packaging or for policymakers, for example. However, in the current linear approach, the waste pickers, they sit at the very end of the plastics value chain. They are totally disconnected. And this is, uh, so, and this is one of the reasons why we see a lot of material not being collected at all. And we also see a high level of social vulnerability. So I see a huge opportunity here to better integrate these uh, important actors. So their knowledge, their expertise from dealing with this material every day can inform packaging designers how to ensure better recycling by design and also to inspire inclusive, policy, uh, inclusive new policies, public policies, which could ultimately allow not only the increase of recycling rates, but also uh, additional income for waste pickers who are so often uh, undercompensated. Thais, we, we have some uh, questions from the audience who are talking, who are asking us uh, kind of like, um, what is the what is the social impact that these things can have? And you, we were we are just discussing it now. Uh, you know the importance of including uh, waste pickers in the whole value chain, and not just at the at the end. Um, so, is there an example of that in you know in which uh, we have been successful as at integrating these actors? And what were the challenges in doing so? 
Yeah, I think one of the best ways, uh, as, as we were saying, to take people's knowledge into consideration in this context is to create the space, is to create a space where they can have a seat at the same table, they can be heard, we can dialogue. And so this, the pre-competitive atmospheres, the cross-value chain platform, platforms, this can be very powerful tools to solve such complex and common challenges. So, for example, the Plastics Pact, it is an initiative developed by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Uh, the Pacts, just for uh, a little bit of context, the Pacts are voluntary, uh, voluntary agreements signed by a significant amount of businesses, governments, and NGOs from one specific country or region who are united between, uh, who are united behind common targets to tackle plastic pollution to tackle plastics pollution through collaboration in that specific region. Uh, we are leading a global network of plastics packs around the world. That There are seven that were launched already, all working towards a common vision for a circular economy for plastics. And Chile was the first uh, Latin American country uh, to launch a plastics pact. And different from others, because the, plas the, the nature of the plastic spec is to adapt to the local reality. Uh, in Chile, the informal sector representatives, they are part of the advisory board and also of the working groups. And as a result, the, the PACT's roadmap in Chile, which is the, the strategy that defines how the whole group is going to uh, meet their targets, they, uh, it includes the informal sector as part of the solution, which I think it's really inspiring. Thank you, Thais. And I mean, we've just discussed examples in Brazil, in Chile. I mean, there are probably so, so many more that we would love to talk about um, that hopefully we will in, in future episodes as well. And we've mentioned these examples are part of the plastics industry, but we know that the circular economy uh, works and there are examples of these across many types of industries and sectors. So now, Mike, Thais, um, we know that Latin America is one of the biggest producers of agricultural products and as we've mentioned in this show several times, is really rich in natural resources. So how do we ensure that the circular economy can uh, enable better value creation and distribution while including the social aspect as part of it? And it would be great if you could share with us some examples. Well, I think the first thing the circular economy should integrating, you know, the local knowledge and the local communities because Latin America got a really, really traditional and ancestrality knowledge about how to grow food, how to source food. And one of the ambitions of the Food Initiative is actually grow uh, and source food locally and regeneratively. So I think Latin America has a great potential to, to embrace and to achieve this goal. Actually, one simple and very impactful thing that we can do is just re-diversify the meals because we got a huge biodiversity uh, assets. So that biodiversity, we have ingredients from Amazon, different types of biomes. We have Cerrado, we have Andes, we have extensive soil-based uh, vocation to agriculture. That's kind of a heritage, you know, for old civilizations that used to live there, like Incas, Mayas, Aztecas, and indigenous people in general. So it's time to benefit that, it's time to rescue that culture and bring it back together again. Um, however, um, you know, during the linear extractive 
challenges and schemes uh, production models in large scale uh, of monocultures. We are just incorporation like ultra processed food and forgotten or forgetting like this type of ingredients and the biodiversity. So we are we're, is, we're gradually moving really away from this this ancestrality and this knowledge. So one thing that could help or could influence it the way we, we eat is creating policies or governments helping creating policies to brew to to put biodiversity again into the meals and chefs uh, chefs could play a big role on the food initiative and bringing back like the biodiversity into meals into you know like menus so it's 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 i can give you guys like a, a example right now so sao paulo is one of the flagship cities from the food initiative that the city would try to demonstrate a circular economy and for food and that city got you know 2.5 million, they served 2.5 million uh, meals a day for kids and uh, schools, for, for kids, for students, for public school. And part of that meal could be, could be sourced or regeneratively as part of the public procurement, you know, that, that's a national public procurement. And there's a local one that ensure part of that came from local farmers or for organic and regenerative production. And also there's a project that I want to share with you, all of you, that's called Connect the Dots. That project aims to, to make sure that we can keep like the natural resources from Sao Paulo. And Sao Paulo got a, a green area, a really extensive green area, and how to keep that area and stopping like the urbanization to get there. So they created a project that aims to to convert all traditional, you know, production of food into regenerative food and regenerative production. So that's a way to keep that, the biodiversity and to keep uh, the natural resources alive. And Thais, before I let you also share uh, some examples, I want to say, you, you just mentioned that Sao Paulo is one of the flag, flagship cities uh, for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Um, and I think maybe you could maybe could you could tell us a bit more about that. What what does this mean uh, for you know for the audience who is not um, you know doesn't know too well yet what we do at, as part of the food initiative? Okay, so the food initiative got three flagship cities to demonstrate a circular economy for food: São Paulo, London, and New York City. And those cities are trying to we, we try to mobilizing actors and actors that operating on the food systems on those locals to to building a new food system, a circular food system actually. So we try to, to, to move into academia, food producers, small producers, uh, governments and institutions, you know, to help and to solve this, this, this to become more circular. Thank you, Mike. And for anyone who you know is interested in learning more, we just had the big our big food workshop uh, some weeks ago, so they can just uh, go to the ellenmacarthurfoundation.org website and they will find uh, all the sessions that took place. And they, you, you, there you can learn more about this. Sorry, Thais, I, I saw you wanted to also <laughs> speak. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think we could we could also take an example from the cosmetics industry here. 
Natura is the largest Latin American cosmetics company, and it collaborates with local families in the Amazon, where their R&D center is based in. And they unveil functional properties of surrounding biodiversity, biodiversity assets that might be used as ingredients uh, for products there inside the Amazon. Uh, the Amazon, and by leveraging this traditional knowledge, Natura generates financial, social, and environmental benefits. They are able to create new revenue-generating product lines, long-term sustainable employment for thousands of families, uh, and, uh, and also decrease deforestation as the trees can create more economic value standing than sold as timber, which we are seeing that uh, uh, it's, it's a large practice here in, in, in Brazil, especially. Uh, beyond this, uh, we know that our endless opportunities to capture value by creating a bioeconomy from natural natural assets, traditional knowledge, but this is a good example. And I mean, you've mentioned several things, but especially you've kind of like summarized to us why it's so important to take into account the local communities and integrate their knowledge um, in any kind of business or initiative that you are trying to implement in in a particular region or space. And uh, Mike, you mentioned uh, public uh, procurement and policy, which uh, it's a very important thing if you want to scale the circular economy. You cannot... Uh, you know, you can have the business innovation, you can have the research uh, from academia, but then if you don't change the rules of the game uh, and policymakers kind of have to catch up with this, with these kind of things happening, um, you know, the circular economy cannot scale. Um, so how is the Latin America in this sense? Has, has policy kind of uh, catch, caught, <laughs> has it caught up with... Uh, with the business innovations there. Yeah, we are actually seeing really exciting developments in this direction here. Uh, for example, several gover uh, local governments have signed the global commitment to build a circular economy for plastics. Uh, more recently, uh, representatives of companies and governments, including the city of Sao Paulo that you were mentioning, have signed the joint statement agreeing, uh, agreeing that we need to build back better from this pandemic, and that includes applying the circular economy principles. As I mentioned before, in Chile, we have the first Latin American uh, country to join the Plastics Back Network. The Colombian government has launched a circular economy strategy. There is also a regional uh, coalition that is being formed to promote circular economy in the whole continent, in Latin America and the Caribbean. And these are some examples, there are more, but, uh, and we hope to see even more uh, from now on in these coming years, as well as multi-stakeholders initiatives that I believe that can really help to drive systemic change. And Mike, do you, do you agree with Thais? Um, what do you think is, could be the next thing that needs to happen in Latin America to, for the circular economy to scale? Yeah, we are seeing a few things, but we need move to another level, to another step. So the most important right now, I think, is we need decision makers. So either from business or governments, we really need to see the circular economy as an approach that can bring a long-term prosperity. It's not just about an extra effort, you know, that needs to be in the agenda. And we already have many issues to address in the region, like social, economical, and environmental issues. So we need an approach that could embrace all the complexity of the region. Otherwise, we can never address those together. And 
you know, there are, we've mentioned so many things in this session, but if, if you could summarize what would be your, two, like we, we can say three key takes away. Maybe Mike, you can start by saying two and then we can move to Thais. Um, the first, I think we need local, uh, we need solutions for sure, global solutions, but adapted to local context because we have a huge social inequality in the region. And also we have a, a, a big natural and abundant resource of uh, biodiversity. So we need to take that in consideration when you talk about circular economy. And also the system fragilities that have been there for years, uh, they are more evident right now with the virus outbreak. So the transition for a circular economy right now is more relevant than ever before. Yes, and adding to that, I, I would say that to create more resilient business models and integrate important actors, we need enabling conditions in place, such as policy and financing. And the good news is that some of these conditions are already being implemented in some areas of Latin America. In this conversation, we have discussed that policy and financing are key enabling conditions to create more resilient business models and that these conditions are already being implemented in some areas of Latin America. We have also explored Latin America's reaction to the pandemic and some of the opportunities for a circular economy for food and plastics within the Latin America region. That's all for this episode of the Explore the Circular Economy podcast. We look forward to seeing you again in future episodes, but bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.